You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to have this opportunity once again to worship with you and to preach to you. I was telling Brother Will earlier this week that it's felt like quite some time since I've been in the pulpit. I believe it's been uh, nearly three months since the last time I attempted to expound upon the Word of God in the context of the corporate worship of His people. And so I do come this morning with a sense of trepidation and with a sense of weakness, and if I could put it this way, a sense of rustiness and preaching. Uh, but dear ones, I hope I never lose that sense of my inadequacy for this holy task. As the Apostle Paul once said when contemplating the weight of the responsibility of proclaiming God's gospel, he said, who is sufficient for these things? And so I come this morning realizing that in my own strength I am insufficient for this holy task. For the task of preaching is nothing less than this. It is to clear away all the obstacles that would hinder you from seeing Christ so that you would see him in the text and in seeing him that you'd be drawn to him in saving faith and repentance. And so it is in this felt sense of inadequacy that the preacher has a has a great advantage. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the preacher has a great advantage when it comes to worship because the very nature of the work of preaching causes the preacher to be afraid, to be desperate for grace. And so as the preacher drives to church on Sunday morning, they do so with a sense of nervousness as they understand that the task that they are about to engage in is bigger than themselves. But as I've sought to remind you in the past, it's not only the preacher that needs help in this holy hour of preaching. For preaching involves both the preacher and the hearer. Thus, the hearer needs the grace of God as well. I'm not sure if you drove to church this morning with a sense of nervousness uh, in, in understanding that the task of hearing was bigger than, than you are, that you needed the grace of God if you were to hear rightly. But you should have. Sometimes I think we can lose that as, as those who are hearers of the gospel. You need the grace of God if you would hear the gospel rightly. And so we, we together, but you as the hearer, are about to enter into a battle. Over the past couple of weeks, Pastor John has preached on the fact we are in a warfare. Well, as the hearer of the gospel, you are about to enter into a battle. You will have to fight against distraction. You will have to fight against laziness. You will have to fight even against sinful thoughts from coming into your mind. And yes, you may have to fight against a propensity to be hypercritical about things that ultimately matter very little while failing to have your heart penetrated by the most important truths. And then after fighting to hear well, you must then respond appropriately. That is, you must be a hearer and doer of the word. So our confession makes it clear that to hear the word of God properly, you need the illumination and the help of the Holy Spirit. And so the task of the preacher is to hold forth Christ and to plead with you to look to him with eyes of faith. And your task as the congregation is to be sitting on the edge of your seat, listening and looking for Christ. And when you hear and see him, that you would lay hold of him by faith. That's your task this morning. That you would sit on the edge of your seat, looking and listening for Christ. And when you hear him, lay hold of him by faith. Well, that leads me to an introduction to the series that God willing, we will be engaged in over the next four weeks. As you can see from your handout, we are beginning a series on the book of Malachi. And this admittedly is not one of the most well-known books of the Bible. I would venture to say that many of you 
have never heard a series preached through the book of Malachi. And perhaps most of you probably have only ever heard one sermon from the book of Malachi, probably a sermon about tithing. And I'm also not so naive to, to, to understand that some of you may have never even read the book of Malachi. I understand that as we come to this series. Now, one of the great burdens of the ministry is the dilemma that exists between the sheer size of the Bible and the lack of time. The minister's job is to preach the whole counsel of God, which is why we as your elders are committed to consecutive expository preaching, which means that our standard practice is to preach whole books of the Bible, verse by verse, from beginning to end. And yet there is simply not enough time to preach all of the text of Scripture. I was actually talking with Pastor Thomas about this a few months ago, and he's been in the ministry for uh, somewhere around 40 years, and yet he has not preached through all the books of the Bible. And so as I spoke with Pastor Thomas about this, he shared with me that occasionally it is appropriate and necessary to do thematic preaching. Thematic preaching is preaching that covers large sections of Scripture in a short amount of time for the purpose of conveying to the congregation the most important themes in those particular passages or sections of Scripture. And so normally when we preach, we want to go verse by verse, preaching through books of the Bible, but that takes a long time. If you're not, uh, if you recall, we just finished a, a series through the book of Ephesians, right? Now, Ephesians is a pretty small book. In fact, Ephesians make, makes up less than one half of 1% of all of the biblical texts. It's a very small little portion of the scriptures. And yet, we spent almost a year in the book of Ephesians. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but that would mean if we were to preach verse by verse through the, through the Bible, it would take us somewhere around 200 years to preach through the whole of the Bible. And so, because we've just been in a verse by verse extended exposition of the book, we have decided that for this series in the book of Malachi, we're going to approach it in a more thematic way as opposed to a more thorough verse-by-verse -verse approach. And so my goal is to go through this book in just four weeks. Now, at the outset, you must understand that in, in approaching the book this way, that not every verse is going to be discussed, and not every question that you might have about the particular meaning of a particular verse or a passage is going to be covered. So there are going to be some unanswered questions when we get to the end of this series. So at the outset, you need to be aware of that. But in reading and studying the book of Malachi, I wanted to think through how does this book, the book of Malachi, contribute to the larger meta-narrative of Scripture? If the whole of the Bible is one story telling one glorious message about God's redemptive and covenantal love for his people in Christ, how does Malachi communicate that overarching theme? Well, as I read and reread and meditated and studied through this book, it became apparent to me that the book of Malachi contributes to this overarching scriptural theme of God's redemptive and covenantal love by showing that God's covenant of grace originates in the love of the Father and that the conditions attached to his gracious covenant are not dependent on the weakness of fallen men, but rather on the covenant-keeping Christ, resulting in the everlasting blessing of all those united to the Christ by faith. That, that last quote is in bold on your sheet. That, that's the goal of our series, is to show that message from the book of Malachi. And I want to try and accomplish this goal by preaching the following four sermons from this book. 
The first sermon that we'll preach, that we'll go through today is titled God's Electing Love as the Fountainhead of the Covenant of Grace. We'll look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Jesus, the faithful priest, and look at how he, how he is the covenant keeper from Malachi 2.7. And in the third week, we'll look at God's covenant faithfulness from Malachi 3.6. We'll see that if God has begun a good work in his people, he will bring it to completion. He is faithful to his covenant promises. And then lastly, in week four, we'll look at the blessing of the, of the covenant from Malachi 4.2. We'll see that the that the culmination of this covenant is that God's people will spend forever with him in heaven. And they'll do so leaping like calves from the stall. Um, and so we'll look at these four messages over the next four weeks. Well, we have been reminded of the need for God's grace if we would preach and hear rightly. And with this introduction to the series that we're about to engage in set before us, let us ask the God of all grace for his blessings as we begin. Let's pray. Holy Father, your word teaches us that you are love. And surely your love is the very source of all your gracious dealings with your creatures. Your word tells us that it was your love which was the reason that you sent your only begotten son into the world. That all who would believe upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. But Father, we are also aware that left in our sinful state, we will not be thankful for your love. We will remain blind and hardened and indifferent to your love. Father, I pray that this morning as your word is preached, that the Holy Spirit would empower the preacher to declare that love, which is greater far than tongue or, greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. And that the Holy Spirit would enable each and every person in this room to see and to comprehend your great love that surpasses knowledge. And that this would result in the sanctification of your people as they are built up in love, and that it will likewise result in the irresistible drawing of sinners unto yourself, and this to the praise of your glorious grace, which is made available to all who would trust in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, before we launch into considering God's electing love as revealed in chapter 1 of Malachi, we need to make a few introductory observations about the historical context and literary structure of this book. So first, the author of this book was the prophet Malachi. If you notice in verse 1, it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, the authorship of this book has been the source of much debate. Uh, the reason for that is because the name Malachi means messenger, or the word angel. And so some have taken the view that that Malachi was not even a human at all. It was an angel of the Lord who gave this word to Israel. Others have taken the view that, that Malachi was really Ezra because Malachi was a contemporary of Ezra, and so they assumed that it wasn't a separate person, but it was Ezra going under the title of messenger of the Lord. However, the majority consensus has been that Malachi was a separate person from Ezra or Nehemiah, and that Malachi was indeed like all the prophets, and therefore he was truly a man who was a messenger sent from God. And so the author of this book is the prophet Malachi. And this leads us to the date and occasion of this last book of the Old Testament. 
Once again, there is much debate as to the exact date that this book was penned. Some date the book between the time of Ezra in 458 B.C. and the coming of Nehemiah, who came in 445 B.C. Now, the internal evidence for Malachi being dated near the time of Ezra and Nehemiah is extensive. The reference to the word governor in chapter 1-8, if you notice uh, chapter 1, verse 8, there's a reference to the word governor. That dates the book um, in the Persian period. Further, the issues that Malachi was addressing in the people of Israel were the same issues that Ezra and Nehemiah were dealing with. And namely, those issues were the issue of foreign uh, marriage to foreign women, uh, the issue of the neglect of the tithe and other failures of the people to render proper obedience to God, uh, the issue of the evils of a degenerate priesthood, and many other social sins that plagued Israel during this time. And so taking all of that into account, along with the clear link that is made between the prophecy of John the Baptist in Malachi and the appearance of John the Baptist in the Gospels, I think we can safely date this book near the end of the 5th century B.C., and thus Malachi serves as the last word from God before an intertestamental period of silence that would last around 400 years. Now, one of the reasons that we need to know the date of the book is to see how the message of the book is addressed to a particular period in redemptive history. The book, the book of Malachi was written to Israel during the post-exilic or post-exile periods. If you recall, Israel had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and then later the Assyrians were overtaken by the Babylonians, and so Israel passed from being under the control of the Assyrians to being under the control of the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians were captured by the Persians, and so Israel was then passed to being under the control of the Persians. And then during the silent period, what happens is Persia is overtaken by Greek or by Greece, by Alexander the Great, and so Israel passes to being under the control of Greece, and then the Romans overtake uh Greece, and then Israel's passed to being under the control of the Romans. And so when we come to the New Testament, Israel is under the control, under the hand of the Roman Empire. But during the time of Malachi, Israel, if you would recall, had been allowed to return to the Promised Land and to rebuild their temple due to a decree issued in 538 B.C. by King Cyrus of Persia. And so at the time of Malachi, Israel was back in the promised land, and they had a rebuilt temple. However, even though they were back in the promised land, even though they had their, their temple rebuilt, they were still a weak nation under the control, under the thumb of the Persian Empire. And so therefore, they were a nation and a people that began to lose hope. And so when we come to Malachi, it had been around 100 years since the exile ended, and yet there seemed to be no progress towards seeing the fulfillment of the glorious promises of God prophesied by earlier prophets. They were expecting that once again God would make them into a great nation. In fact, they were expecting that he was going to make them into the most powerful nation on the earth. In many ways, the people of Israel were a disaffected people. They had begun to lose faith that God really did love them, and that he really was going to be faithful to his past promises. And so Malachi confronts a people skeptical of God's promises and therefore indifferent to live in the light of those promises and to worship and serve the Lord with all their hearts and with all their souls. Well, this leads us to the literary structure of the book of Malachi. 
The book of Malachi is comprised of the following structure. God through Malachi will make several declarations to the people. The people will will reply to those declarations with questions, and then God will answer their questions. And in the process of doing so, on the one hand, he severely rebukes the people for their sin, while at the same time holding forth great promises of what he will do on behalf of his covenant people. Matthew Henry writing on this says that the prophet is sent first to convince and then to comfort, first to discover sin and to reprove for that, and then to promise the coming of him who shall take away sin. Now, the questions that the nation of Israel responds with will reveal their awful spiritual condition. You'll notice as we go through this book, when God makes a positive declaration to the people, they reply with a question of doubt and unbelief. The clearest example of this is in chapter 1, verse 2. Notice that verse. God makes a declaration. He says, I have loved you. And the people reply with the question, how have you loved us? And then God will reply with explaining how he has loved them. Okay, so that's one example. God making a positive declaration, the people responding with a question of doubt and unbelief, and then God answering that question. And then conversely, when God makes a negative declaration whereby he calls out their sin, the people reply with a question of self-righteous and self-justifying ignorance. Notice chapter chapter 2, verse 17. We see a clear example of this. In that verse, Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. So that's the, the negative declaration. And they reply with, how have we wearied him? And then God will reply with explaining how they have wearied him. And so this, this book is laid out with six separate declarations, the questions that the uh, nation of Israel responds to those declarations with, and then God answering those questions. And so what we have in this book is the Lord rebuking the people of Israel by exposing their sinful hearts and actions, while at the same time displaying both his holiness and his merciful love. Now, there is something interesting about the way that the people respond to these declarations from God. And the way that they respond reveals to us how an unregenerate person responds to the word of God. If you preach the special covenantal love of God to those who are unregenerate, their response, apart from the grace of God, will be one of unbelief. They will refuse to believe that God loves them. Now, that might manifest itself in in someone reasoning in their heart that that they're too bad that God can't love them. It could manifest itself that, that way. It could manifest itself in a person scoffing at the idea that God loves them because of the bad things that have happened to them in their life. It could manifest itself in a person being dull and indifferent to the declaration of God's covenantal love. And I suspect that's probably the most common response. People hear the covenantal love of God in Christ, and most people are are dull and indifferent to that message. However, the regenerate person's heart leaps with joy when they hear God's declaration of his love for sinners. The, The regenerate heart agrees with God when he says that he loves them. And so the question before you this morning as we uh, draw out an application here for us is, does your heart leap with joy when you hear about God's love for sinners? 
Does your heart leap with joy when you hear about God's covenantal love for his people? If you're dull and indifferent to that, that is a mark of unregeneration, of not being one who is regenerate. Does your heart leap with joy when you hear about God's love? Likewise, if you preach God's righteous anger against sin, the unregenerate heart will often reply with an indignant disagreement. The unregenerate person doesn't really believe that they are as bad as God declares them to be. Unregenerate man fancies himself that he is good enough and thus will escape hell. I can remember in my own fallen state, when I heard the declaration that I was a sinner, when I, when I heard that I responded by justifying myself with thoughts like, well, I'm not that bad. Um, I'm, I'm better than other people. Uh, my heart's in the right place, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> my, my good outweighs my bad. I would, I would seek to self-justify myself with those sort of thoughts. However, when the Spirit of God changed my heart and I was then confronted with God's declaration that I was a sinner deserving of hell, my response then was to agree with God. And thus I cried out to Him for mercy. Once again, the regenerate heart agrees with God when He declares our sinfulness. And instead of seeking to self-justify, cries out for mercy and for the grace of repentance. And so the unregenerate person responds to the word of God in unbelief, indifference, disagreement, and inaction. Whereas the regenerate person responds to the word of God in belief, conviction, agreement, and action. Our confession of faith in this chapter on saving, in this chapter on saving faith says that saving faith takes God's word to be true. That's a powerful statement. That's what saving faith looks like. It hears the word of God and it believes it to be true. Whereas the unregenerate person hears the word of God and they don't take the word of God to be true. Even if they give lip service to it being true. The way that the confession says that this belief that the word of God is true manifests itself is in the following three ways. Saving faith rejoices in the promises of God. Saving faith trembles at the threatenings of God. And then lastly, saving faith renders obedience to the commandments of God. The unregenerate heart does not rejoice in the promises of God. The unregenerate heart does not tremble at the threatenings of God. And the unregenerate heart does not render obedience to the commandments of God. And so the question before you when you hear the word of God, do you rejoice in the promises of God? Do you rejoice in the declarations of his love? Do you tremble at his threatenings? Do you tremble at the word of God that says the wages of sin is death? Do you tremble at that? And lastly, do you render speedy and joyful obedience to the commandments of God? These are the tests. These are the marks of one who has been saved by God. And what we are seeing here in the people of Israel, as we're about to read this chapter, is that they were not responding to the word of God in that way. They were not rejoicing in his promises. They were not trembling at his threatenings. And they were not rendering obedience to his commandments. Well, with these things in mind, let us read together chapter 1. And then we will turn our focus to the subject of God's electing love as the very fountainhead of the covenant of grace. 
3, chapter 1. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will, we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eye shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest who despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept any offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Thus the reading of God's word and his people said. Amen. Well, as we have read this chapter, let us turn our focus now to verse number two. I have loved you, says the Lord. What a statement. What a declaration from God to think that the Lord of glory, the self-existent I am that I am, the one who is truly independent, the one who is creator of heaven and earth and all that is contained therein, that this one says to a people, I have loved you. It reminds me of Psalm 8 where David is considering the greatness and the glory of the Lord. And he says, as he's, as he's looking at, at God's creation, he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And what David is getting at here is that even the benevolent, common, universal love of God is amazing. What is man that God should even care for him at all, and yet he does? 
He providentially cares for his image bearers. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. So God has a common, universal, benevolent love for all people. And that in and of itself should cause us to bow our knee to God and worship him. Because we don't deserve that. But what the Lord is communicating in Malachi 1-2 is far greater than the common, universal, benevolent love of God. Note the love that God is referring to here is a special love. It is a love that falls under the category of what we, what we might call God's electing love or what we might call God's covenantal love. Now, before we explore that, let us take a moment to look at the response of the people of Israel. The people responded to this amazing declaration of God's love by saying, how have you loved us? Think of the great sinfulness, the, the utter wickedness of such a statement. Most of us remember Paul's indictment on mankind in Romans 1, where he says that although all men know God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, that indictment is in the context of men knowing God by way of natural revelation, which, of course, reveals God's benevolent love for mankind. And so people in their natural state generally live in a state of entitlement. They receive blessings from God as something that is in their mind their due. They may tip their hat to God and thank him for a meal, for example, but if they don't get their meal, they're angry with God which shows that natural man lives as though God owes them. It's kind of similar to what a parent might do with a child or a boss might do with an employee. The parent tells the child to do something, and if the child does it, the parent will thank the child. But if the child doesn't do it, what does the parent do? The child's angry. I mean, the parent's angry with the child. Why? Because that child owes obedience to its parent. Same thing with the boss. The boss might say thank you to the employee if the employee to the employee if they do a good job. But if the employee fails to do a good job, now the boss is angry with that employee. Why? Because the employee is ob obligated to their boss to perform at a certain level. Men in their natural state often relate to God in that kind of a way. They are happy with God when things go well, when God does his job. But if God doesn't do this job in their mind, when things don't go well, watch out. They're angry. I can remember this changing in my heart when I was converted. I can remember how I received blessings with a whole new mindset after I came to faith in Christ. Although I may have, I may have thanked God before, now there was a genuineness to my thanksgiving that wasn't there prior to my conversion. And even this week I've had to... to to rebuke myself and to remind myself that, that I ought to be thankful in all circumstances. I've, uh, even since in my own life that I begin to take things for granted. And we ought not to do that, brothers and sisters. Brother, we, we ought to live in a state of constant thankfulness. Even something as simple as taking a sip of water is to result in worship. We are to receive that water as what it truly is, a gift from the loving hand of our Father. And that gift is not to terminate in us, but is to return to God in thanksgiving and praise and worship. But even when we don't get the things in life that we want or think we need, 
We are to have the heart of Job. Whether the Lord gives or the Lord takes away, we are to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And though the Lord slay me, yet I will trust in him. Brothers and sisters, that is the heart of one who has been brought from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. That's what a regenerate heart looks like. It gives thanks to God in all circumstances. Now, it is one thing to lack thankfulness to God for his general benevolent love. We, we have seen that is a great sin. To go through life receiving blessings from God and not thanking him, that is an awful sin. But it is quite another thing to lack thankfulness for the special electing love of God. And that is what we are seeing being portrayed here by Israel in chapter 1, verse 2. Israel could have at the very least, they could have enumerated the common blessings that come from God. They didn't even do that. And worse than that, they did not recognize or appreciate God's special electing covenantal love for them. They said, how have you loved us? Well, God responds to that question by, by pointing to the reality that he chose them. That is the children of Jacob and he did not choose Esau and his descendants. Notice the end of verse 2 through verse 4. God, in reply to their question, says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says... They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So God shows here by way of negative example how he has loved Israel. He explains to them the obvious fact that he has not loved the descendants of Esau with his special covenantal love. And not only has he not loved Edom, he has dealt with Edom by way of giving them what they deserve. He has dealt with them by way of giving them justice. Now, what makes that such a powerful example of God's love for Israel? Notice once again, verse 2. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? And so what is being communicated by God in that question is this, that God is saying that, that Jacob was not more deserving than Esau. In fact, we know that in all likelihood, Esau was actually more deserving than Jacob. And so what God is saying in giving this negative example of the condition of Edom is to remind Israel that this could be you. You could be receiving from my hand what Edom is receiving, but instead, I have loved you. And I have not stopped loving you. Now, that's a powerful reply to that unbelieving and wicked response from Israel. He says, when Edom rebuilds, God destroys. But when Israel is in trouble, God comes to their aid. He rescued them from Egypt. He made them into a great nation. Yes, as a result of their sin, they were taken into exile. But God in his covenant love did not forget them, but rather he brought them out of exile and returned them to their land. And so how can Israel say, how have you loved us? Now let us turn our attention to what is being communicated in verse number five. 
He says, your own eyes shall see this, this destruction of Edom. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, what is being communicated here, I think, is very important for both Israel to grasp, but also for us to grasp today. God is saying to the nation of Israel that he is the God and king of all nations. He is not just the God of Israel. He's not some tribal God, but rather he is the sovereign over all things. And yet, although he very well could have entered into a gracious covenant with all the nations, he chose Israel to be the one nation in the Old Testament era that he would covenant with, that he would dwell with, that he would give his covenants of promise to, that pointed to the coming Messiah who would establish an eternal kingdom that will never be shaken. And thus Israel was chosen to be the nation from which blessing would extend to all peoples of this earth, thus fulfilling the great covenant promises given in the garden and reiterated to Abraham. And so in light of this overwhelming declaration of God's special love for the nation of Israel, which is not a new declaration, this is not the first time Israel has heard this. In fact, Israel has known that God has chosen them and, uh, and placed upon him this special electing love for well over a thousand years at this point. And so you would expect that the response of the people, the people of Israel, will be to honor God. This leads us to verse number six. God says what is normal and expected is for a son to honor his father and for a servant to honor his master. God then goes on to say that he, in a special way, is the father of Israel. In Hosea chapter 11, we see that God refers to Israel as his son. You see, a father does not expect to get honor from those who are not his sons, right? but he does expect to get honor from a son. So again, what is being communicated here is very clear. The other nations were not the son of God, but Israel was. Israel had a special relationship with the one true God, and this relationship was not initiated by Israel, but it was based on the electing love and grace of God. God is saying, once again, I chose you as a nation to be my son. Therefore, you ought to honor me. The same is true of the master and servant analogy in this verse. A servant owes honor and allegiance to his master. He doesn't owe it to those who are not his masters. Again, what's being communicated is clear. God is saying, I chose you to be my servant. I didn't choose the other nations to be my servant. And therefore, because we have this special relationship that distinguishes us from distinguishes my relationship with you from my relationship with everyone else, you ought to have a special honor and fear of me. And yet we see the clear indictment upon the nation. They were not honoring God as their father, and they were not fearing him as their master. The attention then is turned from the nation in general to the priest specifically. In verses 7 through 14, God offers a blistering rebuke to the priest who were offering polluted offerings on God's altar. Rachel and I have been reading in Leviticus the past few nights in family worship. And as I've been studying the book of Malachi, studying Malachi 1 and reading Leviticus and comparing the two, 
it really looks like this. It looks like the, the priest in Malachi's day, it looks like they opened the book of Leviticus, they looked at the ceremonial law of God and said, all right, how can we break this? How can we do the exact opposite of what it says in Leviticus? Because that's what we see happening here in Malachi 1. It's, it's, quite, it's quite remarkable when you look at that. And the, and the question we have to ask ourselves, though, is this, because it's easy for us to sit in a place of judgment. If, I, if you were to look at your life, are you doing what the law says? Or is, does your life look like you open to the Ten Commandments and said, all right, let me do the opposite of that? So we need to examine ourselves in that. But over and over again in the book of Leviticus, God makes the point that the reason the ceremonial laws were so meticulous that everything had to be exactly right was because the Lord was holy. And he demands that his people regard him as holy. But notice the attitude of the priest in verse 13 with regard to the ceremonial law of God. They say, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. I think that reveals something of the deplorable condition of, of, the, of the nation at this point. The nation had so fallen into a deplorable state that they were committing capital crimes against the Lord and doing so with apathetic smugness. The people today commit capital crimes against the Lord with apathetic smugness. Absolutely. Yes. Have you ever been guilty of that? Sometimes we are, we are as well, right? And so we are, in need, we are in need of the mercy and the grace of God. You're left wondering if those priests in Malachi's day remember what happened in Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu despised the altar of the Lord. Remember what happened to them? Fire came out from before the Lord and they were consumed and they died before the Lord. And then what did God say to Aaron, the father of Nadab and Abihu? He said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And so we saw that in the time of, Le of Leviticus, that God responded to those despising his altar with judgment. He despised with killing them, with giving them exactly what they deserved. And he did this so that his name would be great in the nation of Israel. But how is God going to address this issue here in Malachi? Because we see the same thing going on, right? Probably far worse than what was going on in Leviticus. So how is God going to address this issue? He is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, in the context of God's blistering rebuke of the priest and consequently his covenant nation, there are two verses in this section that reveal to us the glorious and mind-boggling grace of God. Brother Ryan brought this out a, a few weeks ago. If you're not surprised by the grace of God when you read the Scriptures, you're not reading the Scriptures rightly. 
And, and not only is he gracious, but he works in unest, unexpected ways that boggle our minds. There should be times when we're reading the scriptures, we're like, wow. The, the wisdom of God, and he, he does things in a way that we would not expect. He saves us by sending his son to be slaughtered on a cross. That's, that's not expected. But he saves us in unexpected ways. But what is he going to do in this situation? Because what Israel has done in despising God's special covenant love for them, and that's what they were doing. It's more than they would. Yes, they were despising his altar. Yes, they were, they were, they were despising the ceremonial law. But more than that, they were despising God's special covenantal love. And what they had done was worthy of God justly destroying them. But instead of prophesying of destroying them, he prophesies of pouring out a measure of grace upon mankind that heretofore had never been seen. And in doing so, he is setting the stage for a great transition in God's gracious dealings with his people. Notice what God says in verses 11 and at the end of verse number 14. In verse 11, he says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Did they notice the end of verse 14? He says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now, this is an interesting response from God. You see, back in Leviticus, when the people sinned, God's response was that his name will be great in Israel. He says, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Well, who was it that was near him? It was the covenant people, Israel. But in Malachi, God's response to the sin of Israel was different. His response signifies and prophesies about something that God is about to do, which is utterly remarkable. You see, Malachi comes at the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi is marking a very significant point in redemptive history. God is about to prepare the world stage for a great transition leading to a great fulfillment of his gracious purposes. You see, God is about to do, about to do two remarkable things. First, he is about to extend his electing love beyond the borders of Israel. We notice him saying that over and over again in this section, that you're going to see that I am great beyond the borders of Israel, verse 5. Verse 11, that he is going to be great in all the nations. And then verse 14, that in all the nations my name will be feared. And so he is about to extend his electing love beyond the borders of Israel. And in the process of doing so, he is about to institute a new and better covenant that will replace this old covenant that the people of Israel are under, a covenant that in and of itself was insufficient to bring about God's gracious purposes. So I think in this passage, Malachi 1, we begin to see glimpses of God's plan to expand and magnify his grace in dealing with his covenant people. And so if you're, if you're aware of this, Malachi, during the time of Malachi, Israel was in what's called the Old Covenant with God. And I want to examine with you some particulars of the Old Covenant and then compare that with this new covenant that God is about to institute. 
First, in the Old Covenant with Israel, we see God's special electing love, which has been magnified in this chapter. But this special electing love of God is in, re in reference to a theocratic election. What that means is that God chose or elected Israel to be a particular physical nation that he would enter into a covenant with, which is, a, is God's special electing love. It's greater than his common universal benevolent love. Secondly, this special electing, electing love of God was applied only to the physical nation of Israel and not to the other nations or people groups of the world. Okay? Thirdly, the way that God governed this specially chosen people was by way of an external law. It was by way of a law that was written on tablets of stone. God governed his people by way of the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws delivered to Israel on Mount Sinai. And it was the judgment of God against sin, which was the primary mode of operation of how God governed his people. Fourthly, God dwelt with the specially chosen people in a limited way. He dwelt with them in a particular physical location, namely in a building made with hands, that is, the temple. And then fifthly, the promise or blessing of this old covenant was for the people to dwell in a physical location called the promised land. That was the blessing of the covenant, that it would be brought into this promised land and kept in this promised land. Now, we could go on nuancing and explaining the particulars of this old covenant, but the two verses cited here in Malachi 1, verses 11 and 14, begin to show us some glimpses of the superiority of this new covenant that God is about to institute. So let us examine how the new covenant compares, and I think you will see something of how God's plan is to magnify his grace to his covenant people. And again, this is not exhaustive. So, in comparison to the old, first, God's special electing love in the new covenant is one of soteriological election. It is dealing with election unto salvation. And so, in the old covenant, election is dealing with a theocratic corporate election, and this new covenant is dealing with the election of individuals unto salvation. Now, already there, we can begin to see something of, of how when God says, I have loved you, gets magnified for us as Christians, right? We've seen already that to, to spurn the, the common universal benevolent love of God is a great sin, right? To spurn God's special electing love in the context of the old covenant, in the context of being theocratically elected, that was a greater sin. But if you were to spurn the electing love of God as it, as it regards to soteriology, to salvation, that is even a far greater sin. So this new covenant is dealing with election unto salvation, an election of individuals unto salvation. Secondly, this specific salvific election of God is not limited to a particular nation or people group, but includes individuals from every nation and every people group. 
It doesn't include every individual from every nation or people group, but it does include individuals from every nation and from every people group. Thirdly, the way that God governs his people in this new covenant is not only by way of the law externally given, but by writing his law on the very hearts of his people. Thus, as it says in verse 11, these people will offer pure offerings, the offering of true spiritual worship. And in verse 14, the people from every nation will truly fear the Lord. As it says in Ezekiel's, uh, in Ezekiel's prophecy of, the, of this new covenant, God will give this people a new heart and he will cause them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. We saw that Israel, they, they were not being careful to obey the rules of God. In fact, they said they were wearisome and they snorted at those rules. But in this new covenant, God will place a new heart, a new spirit within his covenant people, and they will be careful to obey his rules. So as our confession will put it, this law of God is written on the heart and it sweetly complies with the gospel. And thus the law of God is not a weariness, but rather is the, is the delight of the member of the new covenant. And thus in this new covenant, God will govern his people by changing their hearts so that they love the law and desire to obey it because they love God. Think of the Ten Commandments. You love God, right? The reason you love God because he has loved you. He's loved you with, with an everlasting love. He's saved you. He's not left you in your sins. He, he's given you eternal life and he's promised that he will not leave you or forsake you. And you love him. Now, how do you love him? You love him, but you, and you want to show love to him. How do you do that? By having no other gods but before him. See that? You just go through the Ten Commandments. By not taking his name in vain, by not worshiping images, by honoring the Sabbath, by honoring your father and mother, by not killing, by not stealing, by not committing adultery, by not lying, by not coveting. These are all ways in which we, we get to love God. And so the law becomes for us now a tool that helps us to love God. You see that? So the law now sweetly complies with the gospel. It's not a burden to us, but it is a delight to us as we seek to render worship and love and obedience to our God. Fourthly, in this new covenant, God will make his covenant people into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And thus God dwells within the very hearts and within the very midst of his covenant people. And this people will not be limited to one nation or people group, but rather from the rising of the sun to its setting, God will be great among the nations. I love to think about that on the Lord's Day. That on the Lord's Day, people, the people of God from all over this planet gather for worship. And from the rising of the sun to the setting, there are people worshiping God all over this place, all over this planet. Fulfilling what he prophesied here in Malachi 1, verse 11. Fifthly, the promised blessing of this new covenant is eternal life that begins now and culminates in the true promised land, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And so we see how this new covenant that God is about to institute deals with the issues that are going on under the context of the old covenant. The old covenant was not sufficient to give the grace necessary to accomplish God's gracious purposes. 
And so in his great love for his covenant people, he institutes a new and better covenant, which will, in fact, accomplish God's gracious purposes. Well, we need to bring this to a close, but I hope that you have seen something of God's amazing grace and love. See, God could have dealt with Israel by blotting them out. He would have been just in doing so. But instead, his plan was to magnify his grace. Where sin abounds, was the Bible say? Grace abounded all the more. And he does this by both expanding his grace to all the nations of the earth and by giving his covenant people the grace they need to meet the conditions necessary to receive the blessings offered in this covenant. Now I want to touch on a couple, two points of application really quick. And I've already touched on this earlier, but I'll go over it once again. Uh, We have established that it is a great sin for a person not to be thankful for and appreciate God's common, universal, and benevolent love. We've also established that it is a greater sin for Israel to not be thankful for God's special electing love that chose them as a nation. And we've made the point that God's electing love of Israel was in regards to a theocratic election. Well, now this morning, as we consider the covenant that we are under as Christians, we must realize that the electing love of the Father that we experience is not one of theocratic election, but rather is one of election unto salvation. Brothers and sisters, we have been chosen from before the foundation of the earth to be rescued from the wrath of God. We have been chosen to be forgiven of our sins. We have been chosen to be adopted into the family of God. We have been chosen to be granted eternal life. And so God declares to you this morning, I have loved you. What will be your response? Will it be say, will it be say in unbelief and doubt, oh, how have you loved us, God? No. The only acceptable response is love. We love him because he first loved us. And if we love him, it will be manifested in our keeping of his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Brothers and sisters, examine yourself. Make your calling and election sure, and then rejoice in the electing love of the Father on your behalf. You you should not walk out of here today without joy. If you have been reminded that God chose you from before the foundation of the earth, and he didn't have to choose you. He could have left left you in your sins. But he chose you and he set his love upon you. That ought to make you joyful. Lastly, what about those who may be unbelievers here this morning? You can't look to your election as a means of encouragement because you are not exhibiting any evidence of being elect unto salvation. So is there any way that the electing love of God can be an encouragement to you this morning? And I say, yes, there most certainly is. God's electing love is manifested here this morning to unbelievers in the sense that you have been chosen to hear the gospel. To have the gospel preached to you is not a function of God's common, universal, benevolent love. For if that was the case, every person would hear the gospel. But we know that there are people who live and die never hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that God, in a special act of electing love, 
has chosen you to hear the gospel. Dear one, if you're not a Christian here this morning, God is showing special love to you right now. Do not say, how has God loved me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This revelation has been made known to you today. Do not harden your heart in unbelief. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. And the Bible says you shall be saved. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in closing, believer, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It is for believers as well. Would you continue to turn from your sin? And would you continue on trusting in Christ to the salvation of your souls? And this to the praise of God's glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, help us to respond to that word as those who are regenerate. Father, help us to take your word to be true. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rejoice in the promises. You have promised that every single person who would believe upon Christ would be saved. You have promised that if we are trusting in Christ, our sins are forgiven and that we are justified in your sight and you are well pleased with us. Lord, help us to believe that and help us to rejoice in that. Father, your word also gives great warnings and threatenings against sin, against those who would remain outside of your covenant. Father, may we tremble at your threatenings. May we tremble at your word that says you are a consuming fire. May we tremble at our sin. And may this cause us to, to run to you seeking mercy. And Father, I do pray that you would help us to respond to your word and the commandments thereof by rendering speedy and joyful obedience to it. Father, I pray that there be one in this room that is not rejoicing in the promises of God, not trembling at his threatenings and not obeying his commandments, that, that you would change their hearts today, that you would put your spirit in them, that you would write your law upon their heart, and they would become those who love you and love your laws. Father, we thank you for your electing grace. We know that we love you because you first loved us. Father, we know that we deserve hell and you did not have to choose us. Lord, thank you for choosing us. Lord, may this return to you. May this Thanksgiving return to you in worship and obedience and love. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This time, if you would please stand and let us sing hymn number 80. How deep the Father's love for us.